Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to another episode in my epic series, Need to Know Bassist, or NTKB for short. It's a bit like the South Bank show, but just for bassists. Here we like to plunge the affable, yet often spotlight shy bass player into the stinging and unforgiving glare of the centre stage. We've done Geddy Lee. We've done Mark King, we've done others I can't quite remember, but today we talk to arguably the bassist's bassist. Cut him and see that his sinews are elite roundwinds. From Floyd to Madonna via Jimmy Nail, it's time to know the bassist, Guy Pratt. Hello, Guy. Hello, Sean. What a fabulous intro. Well, you've had plenty over there. I do like that. I like the idea of roundwound sinews. (laughs) (laughs) That's just what I imagine, you know. Um, They're probably flat wounds as they get older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to look that up recently, the difference between round wounds and flat wounds. And I'm, I'm, it's tedious, but it's fascinating at the same time. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what it is, except the flat wounds are the old ones, the ones that people used to make. They're now, right, flat wounds, whenever you see flat wounds on a bass, you know it's owned by a bassist. It's a guitarist who goes, yeah, no, I think flat wounds are really cool. Uh, it's like, no one plays flat wounds. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We've all moved on from flat wounds, guys. You know? <laughs> We've it, all moved on, mate. Though I will ask quickly, it doesn't, doesn't Macca use flat wounds on his uh, violin bass? Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, that's I, a good point. I mean, he does have a very flat woundy sound. I've played that bass. <gasps> have you really? I have, yeah, I, just for a second, uh, because the guy who was my tech with Pink Floyd, surprise, was also McCartney's tech. Um, you know, it's that world. Isn't yeah. it? And um, and I went to a McCartney gig at Wembley and I went down to the pit afterwards to say hello to Sid. And he just handed it to me and said, quick, you've only got a couple of minutes. And, I, and there it was. And it still has, you know, with the candlestick park set, yes. it's still taped to it. But of course, um, it was, it's, I had to play it upside down. Yeah. Because it's left-handed. And I was trying to think, oh God, what can I do? So I'd managed to quickly work out Day Tripper upside down. <laughs> so I just got a quick yeah with all the strings going the wrong way so I managed to play Day Tripper on it and then gave it back to him Jesus. so I have played Day Tripper on the violin bass oh and, it, and you saw it that candlestick part that little paper taped on yeah. set list of the last ever yeah. Beatles set yeah that's unbelievable I could tell a similar story about um, one of your paymasters an awful phrase David Gilmore 
because I went to interview David at, um, you'll know, it was one of, it's one of his wonderful studios just near the sea there, down in Sussex. And it was just before... Oh, yeah, the one in Brighton, yeah. The one yeah, in yeah. And he very kindly allowed us in to do an interview. Very lucky to get to it. He doesn't let, he doesn't let anyone interview him, you know. He does very oh, yeah. few interviews. I, I was so privileged. I couldn't I believe mean, it. I did like th three in total for the Ukraine record. Unbelievable. I didn't realise quite how, uh, yeah. you know, sort of f amazing that was to be allowed that access. But also, he let me play uh, some of his guitars before he sold them off four years ago. Oh. And he just kept disarming me by handing them over. So I'd be in the middle of a conversation and I'd ask him something really highfalutin about guitar, about the soul of the guitar. Does it, is there a song in every guitar? And he just sort of, probably tiring a bit from my line of question, he'd just reach behind him and just hand me like the black strap. Just have a go, Sean, they're just guitars. And so I, play, I played one of my That's shit band Mosques uh, songs on every guitar that he handed me. <laughs> Is it almost like, you know, so, so that I could say that they've been played on those iconic instruments. So we've got that in common, I suppose. Um, but first of all... Do you know what? I've got... I've got a oh, go on then. No, no, please. Because I've got a little story about <laughs> Which is that I was with David um, when he got his... Because, you know, he does these... He, Fender do this replica black strap. Yes. And he resisted it for years. And uh, to eventually... But, but he was really, really... And Fender hate them because that he won't ch let them charge enough money for them, which is why they don't advertise them, even though they're the best-selling replica they've ever had. <laughs> and, they, um, and it's fastidiously copied, right? You can either get one that's perfect brand new or one that has all his wares and scratches on yeah. it. And he checked every 50th one to make sure it's exact, right? That's, you know, it's David. He's perfectionist all the way. Yeah. But he, I was with him when the first batch came in. And he went, yeah, this is amazing, this one, because this is the real Brexit. No, hang on, wait a minute. No, that's... <laughs> no, wait, no, that's... No. And it was like he couldn't tell. Which was which And I sort of thought that some lucky guy is going to accidentally <laughs> get the real black strap when they buy a replica. <laughs> Christ, that's, that's sort of um, art philosophy right there, isn't it? What, how would you know if you can't really tell the difference, which one actually is it? You know what I mean? That's a, that's that a real... is, yeah, that is one of those great art questions, isn't it? Yeah, it is. it's completely amazing. Um, <laughs> we'll come back to David, I'm sure, at some point. We must also mention, just to set this up, for that there are a few, you know, outliers out there who might not immediately know about Guy Pratt and his oeuvre, but as well as being just one of the great bass players who's played on everything from, you know, you're almost in the Smiths. Uh, you're in the sort of almost in the Smiths for a little bit. There's a story yeah, there. Week. Pink Floyd, uh, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Bernard Edwards, Bowie and Ferry and all these people, you know what I mean? But you're also a, a, a hallowed podcaster now because you've got rock on tours with Gary, Gary Kemp, of course. Yeah, thank you, yeah, which tends to be the number one music podcast yeah. every week, um, which I'm very thrilled about. Uh, and it's, uh, although that is, turns out, that's very much a sub-genre. <laughs> so when it comes to podcasts, you, it's Ghosts and Dictators, really, if you want to do well, isn't it? <laughs> the only other one I've heard of is the lineup with Sean Keaveney, which apparently nips at your heels every now and again. But it's, you know. Oh, yeah, no, it's a superb podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the one to watch. Yeah, we're very, very conscious of that. <laughs> oh, God. Who have you got on? Who's the next person that you've got on? Uh, when's this going out? Was... It will be going out after Sunday. After, okay, well, it would have been Bob Ezrin. Oh, Uber producer Bob Ezrin. Yes. There'll be stories of plenty. Who was, he was the first person, I was thinking, who was like, um, he, he, the first person who had like that Trevor Horn thing where 
it didn't matter who the record was by. It's like if it said Bob Ezrin, yeah. you know it's going to sound amazing. There are so, certain people as well who have maybe maybe Kiss. I probably gave Kiss. <laughs> yeah, well, not so sure about that one. <laughs> but there are certain people whose yeah. names mean they were never going to be bin men. With all due respect, you know Bob Clearmountain, Bob Ezra, <laughs> Rick Rubin. You know they're incredible names. But even before <laughs> they've true. you've heard what they've done, you're like he's fucking booked this guy. Um, but to get yeah, to, to yeah. the bass for a minute, like what? What was it? Was it guitar into bass for you, or were you straight at the bass? Nope. A lot of people pick up the bass I was later. Straight at the bass. Okay, that's good to hear. I was straight at the bass, and I went to the guitar afterwards, which is why I think I'm actually quite a good rhythm guitarist. Yeah, I have no interest in playing lead guitar at all. Um, but yeah, I wanted a guitar. I wanted an electric guitar when I, you know, like everyone did at the age of thirteen. And uh, of course, my mum said, "Oh, darling, why don't you get a nice Spanish one?" I was like, Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> it was the electric bit. I was, you know, a toaster would have actually been nearer <laughs> what I was after than a Spanish guitar. So uh, I thought. So I asked for a bass guitar because I, I didn't really know what it was, but I knew they wouldn't get me a double bass because I don't know if it would even fit in my room. And um, so this thing turned up, and it was kind of. But what was brilliant about that was, uh, I mean, it was horrible. It's a terribly boring thing to have in your room. I didn't have an amp or anything, mm. and it was enormous. But. Um, when I got back to school, see, there were three or four lucky people who had got electric guitars at Christmas. And if they wanted a band, they needed me. Yeah. So I had my pick, and I picked this bloke, uh, Martin Glover, oh. uh, who you would probably know yes. as Youth. From Killing Joke and that's then that's how it started. Uber Producer from, from there. Uber Producer. Yeah. Well, because I was going to ask that, there's a brilliant bit in one of your stage shows where you demonstrate how very unsatisfying the bass is to start playing as a teenager <laughs> yeah. on your own in well, the bedroom I, without yes, an amp. I, yeah. Yeah. And I use um, Smoke on the Water as an example. <laughs> but it's, it, as you mentioned. Kids today wouldn't understand. They wouldn't that. get it. They wouldn't understand. They'd just be straight on the phone oh, anyway. <laughs> But is it, I guess that you've, you've answered my question there, is, it, which was, is it, is it a kind of, for, for some people, maybe a counterintuitive boss choice, but the best choice to do bass, because you're always going to get to take your pick. You're always going to be in demand, aren't you, as a bass player? Whereas guitarists can be ten I, a penny, can't they? That. Guitarists can be ten a penny, bassists can be ten a penny. Um, they, but I, I think where I was really lucky was, was timing, <laughs> um, because after punk... And, you were, and then when the new romantics came along, suddenly everything became about but because we were everything became sort of anti-rock music apart from you know the, it, but it was all about every yeah. other type of music, you know from African music hip hop was just happening and funk and soul everything so so bass became the thing and all the you know and 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 the biggest pop stars were bass players yeah. uh, were John Taylor Martin Kemp they were you know. So I, I, was, I kind of lucked out there. The 80s yeah. were, were the era of the bass player, like Mick Kahn, like you say, Rhodes, Mark King. Mick, our, yeah. our well, it started, it started with Simo, <laughs> Simo and, and JJ Burnell. Yeah. You know? I mean, think of The Clash, who were the coolest looking band oh. ever, and the coolest looking bloke in the coolest looking band was the bass player. It's fucking true. <laughs> I saw some guy the other yeah. day on, I can't remember. Oh, we can you, swear, can we? Oh, I've, if I can go for it. Um, you know, this is the, this is a long form muso discussion. We swearing must be used as punctuation. Um, I saw some guy who got the Paul Simonon. Uh, is it the front of London calling where he's smashing his bass up? I can't quite remember. Yeah. Um, but he got that as a, yeah, as a tattoo. Front of calling the, front of the Palladium. 
Yeah, and he got that as a tattoo. And it just, you would think, okay, it's a middle-aged man. He's got his first tattoo. It's of the clash. It's going to look shit. But it looked kind of amazing. And it was like, and how many how many people, how many instrumentalists could be tattooed on a 54-year-old's upper arm and it still looked cool? And Simon, and there he is, you know. He sort of managed it, didn't he? That's true. He's sort so of The lovely story about that picture which Simo told me himself. He actually gave me a watch. I've got a, I've got a watch of Paul Simonon's and John Entwistle's. Oh, my nice God. Um, and, yeah. Uh, um, but the, 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 the point where Penny Smith took that picture, when it's just over his head, is the point where he, he was doing it to impress his girlfriend, right. who's at the side of the stage. And the point where he just reached the top of the arc for the smash was the point at which he realised it wasn't his spare. <laughs> which is the... <laughs> Which is the base it was meant to be. <laughs> so at that point, when that iconic picture is taken, he's going, oh, fuck! <laughs> Just doing the quick computation. Can I pull but out? Can I pull out? Can but I pull out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jesus Christ, a poor sod. Um, well, yeah, I was going to mention about the mindset of the base player as well. Like, so a good old mate of mine, aforementioned uh, Mr. Mark King, right? I think there are similarities. Oh, lovely, I love Mark. He's a lovely boy, isn't he? But what is it about you He's guys lovely, that makes it, it, it makes it easy for you to fit in with all these different huge ego scenarios? Like Mark, of course, was was right in the middle. Well, Mark's different. Mark's a front man. I mean, the thing is, I am, as a personality, absolutely unsuited to being a bass player. <laughs> Completely. You know, which is why, I mean, it's I go and I do a stand-up show. I do a podcast. Yeah. I do everything that bass players don't do. But I think that's probably one of the things that works for me as a bass player. In, in the, as long as I do other things, I love that thing of being completely... As a bass player, your job is... It's like being a great waiter. If you're doing your job properly, no one really knows you're there. Yeah. Stuff just gets done. Uh, and it's a really, really nice support. And it just keeps your ego in check. That's nice. It, just make, it forces you to think about everyone else. It forces you, you know, to think about you know, your drama, especially. And it's... Um, so it, it's... So that's why it's it's because it actually goes against every instinct I have <laughs> as a performer, which is look at me. It's um, you know, it's that's I think that that's it's it's one of those things, isn't it? When you do the thing that's counterintuitive to you, that's very often the thing that you're best at. Yeah. So it's nice because I mean, I... a lot of the stuff that I'm proud. I mean, I've got I've got those couple of big show off things, but you know, where like a prayer and yes. whatever. But 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 I only did that because I thought they'd never use it. I, you know, it's. But if you, and something like Earth Song is actually unbelievably simple. You know, it's practically smoke on the water, actually. Yeah. Um, but so, it, so I, you know, I, I don't know. There are, t there are times you want to be flat. I mean, like I said, you know, Mark is a bass guy and he's such a ridiculous, you know, technician. Well, he's playing hi-hat, really. Yes, that's right. He's playing drums, yeah. essentially, isn't he? And, yeah. and a lot of passages he's playing. But what, the reason I mentioned an allegory between you there, or a corollary, is because, you know, when he used to do things like... Um, BMD for the Prince's Trust and stuff like that. He could sublimate his ego and yeah. then just sort of get in there with everybody and be everybody's best mate. I get that vibe from you a little bit that you're quite good at immediately getting on with people. Yeah, that's the. I mean, that's the thing. I, I it's. I, I like to think of myself less as a session player and more of a serial band member. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in that, because I've, I've always. I mean, I'll play on anyone's record, even if. 
I've noticed that there's been sessions I do lately where it doesn't even matter if I really like it. It's just that thing of bringing something to the party and making yeah. someone's day and being around people. That's really, really nice. In a live situation, it's completely different. The idea of being in a band with people you don't get on with is, I, I don't get, I couldn't do it. I, I can't do it as a job. You know, I, I come away from every tour I've ever done with mates. I've you know, I've got, I made great mates on the last Brian Ferry tour I did who are still in touch. You know, one of the guitarists is now doing a website for my missus. And, and uh, you know, and, and the sources are all my mates. Yeah. You know, they're all my best mate. I'm, I'm fronting a band with my best mate. You know, it took me to my late 50s to do that. That's so sweet, <laughs> isn't it? It's all about connections and friendships at the end of the day, I suppose. Yeah. It? It's such a lovely thing. You're about to hear an advert. If you want to hear an advert-free version of our radio show, go to patreon.com slash Keep. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I was going to ask about, about sessions. Like when you, when you booked for a session, like you mentioned, uh, and I was listening to it in, on the tube on the way in because it's any excuse to listen to that era of Madonna. But Like a Prayer is, is one of the great... So who's playing drums on it? It's like a keyboard bass through a lot of it. And then it's, it's keyboard bass, yeah. And, and then you come in and you play these incredible passages. How, how does something like that come about? Yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where I don't really remember that. I remember that album so well. Except for the Like a Prayer session. Um, it's really weird for some, uh, because I don't think I did that live. The, the drums are Sugarfoot, Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat, who's a Jackson strummer. Who's a lover who's just amazing. Um, but, and I, I don't, I remember being there for the choir. But I remember, I think I was just in there one, one afternoon. They had the backing track. It was, uh, and I hadn't been asked to play bass on that. But, um, so it was, just, uh, and I think they had the mood bass for that middle bit, just that. And then I, and so it was Pat Leonard, the producer, Madonna, and me. It was just us sort of <laughs> hanging out. And I think, and just as a joke, I sort of went, what if I did this? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and then forgot about it, just sort of forgot about it. And it wasn't until um, the album was being mixed. And I'd gone back to LA, this was months later, I was uh, to actually do another project with Pat Leonard, which was. Um, which became Toy Matinee, which yeah. became actually the thing I'm most respected by American <laughs> musicians for, but no one knows it over here. And uh, she and Madonna had heard us in town and invited me down to the mix, which I thought was nice. So I went down to the mix, and it, I remember this was the first time, this was because it was 89, 
Yeah. And because of Acid House and everything, things were just turning hippie again. They'd gone from kind of Wall Street to hippie. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. And so she had lava lamps and <laughs> incense and everything, which I hadn't seen in the studio since I was a teenager. And um, she said, come sit next to me. <laughs> so I went and sat down next to her. And they, pl- they were just doing the last run through of Like a Prayer. And they played it incredibly loud. And I didn't, I didn't really remember it. And I was like, that sounds amazing. And there was this bass that was insane. And it sounded kind of like me, but it obviously wasn't me <laughs> because that's above my pay grade. Do you know what I mean? It's like Pino Palladino would yeah. get to do that. Tony Levin would get to do that. Yeah. I don't get to do it. I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of it, I turned to it and absolutely genuinely, I just went, Madonna, that is, I'm sorry, but that is the best record of yours I've ever heard. And that bass is insane. Who played it? And she went, you dummy! That was fucking brilliant. You dummy! <laughs> That's so I Madonna, it. isn't it? Fucking hell. Pick up an <laughs> It reminds me... Time of- is money and the money is mine! <laughs> Don't knock that fucking lava lamp over. You'll turn that place up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it reminds me of the... I just had those flown in from Goa. <laughs> yeah. 70,000 each. First class tickets. <laughs> but it's like, it reminds me of... I'm sure that that was what happened to, with um, John Entwistle on The Real Me, which is one of That's, yeah. the great yeah. passages of yeah. bass playing ever. And I'm pretty sure that, that whoever it was who was recording that, Glenn Johns or something, just pressed record. And said in his. Oh, no, it was. Uh, oh, he no, was it? Was it? Uh, ah, what's his name? No, it wasn't Glenn Johnson. It was. What's his name? Um, oh, great. Who did produce those? I can't remember his name. Days. It's gone. Well, I'll, I'll put Pete it in, put it in post. Pete I'll produced Quadrophenia. Pete produced it. Yeah, so Pete it would have. Quadra- it have been yeah. sort of half a bottle of brandy but, uh, down and he would have who, said, oh, start recording. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, um, John thought he was just getting his bass sound. Yeah. Which, which is why some of it is actually quite out of time. And there's a couple of quite ro- wrong notes in it. I, I, obviously, I know it inside out. In fact, we play it during, um, uh, which is it? It's either, I can't remember, one of the old, one of the Sid Barrett songs okay. on, in the Saucers set. We have, we have two Who references in, yeah, in, during keyboard solos. One of them, me and Lee go into the riff from 515. <laughs> and then, yeah, see Emily play. I, go, I just go into boo, boo, boo. <laughs> boo, boo, boo. <laughs> Is it the whole thing if you want? Is it fair to say, is it fair to say that John was one of your first loves bass wise? John Entwistle? No, it's not really. Mm. The the Who were my first love, absolutely. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't the bass. Mm. It was Pete. It was just the intent. That that's what drew me to music. It wasn't any instrument or anything. It was literally just that intent. The first time I heard Who's Next. Um, I was into Bowie and stuff, but, but I just never... Heard. It was just the idea that anyone could mean anything that much. Yeah. And the fact, obviously, I was, th- I was, you know, 13, and, and hearing anyone sound that cross is really appealing. Yes. <laughs> but they won't get fooled again. Well, that, but if, cross and joyous, and say, won't get, it's, it's that mixture of anger and sheer joy. Yes. That is, you know, everything... A, pubescent boy wants to hear isn't it there's something about so uh, so yeah so the ba- the bass wasn't it with it it's funny it was it wasn't my okay it was all pete pete's pete's passion it, it was all pete it's that thing of well, i finally got to work with this year <gasps> this year you worked with pete times and tell me a little bit more about it yeah. please 
Okay, uh, Pete did a thing for Audible uh, where they, he was interviewed about, and I couldn't believe it, it was the dream period, 79 to 81. Mm. Uh, and whilst he, was, he did this sort of hour-long talk, and in the middle he had to re-record the songs from the period, which was off Empty Glass, which for me, that was absolutely it, because that was when I'd left school, sort of joined a band, had my heart broken and all that stuff, and then Pete puts out Empty Glass. So for the first time since I discovered him, my artist is talking to me in real time about stuff that I might, you know, have started to understand. So it's the most important albums of my life. And I had to go down to his studio with him and I put my mate Jed Lynch, the drummer, because um, Zach was away and also because I love Jed. And we, and we spent three days redoing those songs with Pete. I mean, it's still, it's, uh, you know, at the age of 60, still, you still get one of those things yeah. of the email from Pete is, I believe you have expressed an interest in working with me in the past. <laughs> it's like, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> it's so funny when, in fact, when, and, and then he then called me, when he called me, um, I was sitting where I am now, and Georgie, my missus, and her son Lucas were upstairs, and, uh, and they thought something awful had happened. They thought I'd knocked my computer over and broken it or done something, so because I was just screaming. <laughs> and they were, too, they were too scared to come downstairs and look. Because they thought I was really, really angry. <laughs> because you were just enraptured with... I just, I just, yeah, I couldn't, but it was like, that was it. That's job done. Kill me now, you know. I've got to say... And it, and it was insane working with him. I mean, worked Pete, that guy, man, I've got to say. I was thinking, it was just like going to a three-day TED talk. <laughs> Is he just never stopped proclaiming from the, that incredible no, cranium? On all the time, yeah. yeah, on all the time. Artificial intelligence, synthesis, politics, you know, just never ends. It's amazing, amazing. I, he's, he's one of the, the, the sort of great cerebral musicians of yeah. all time, as far as I'm concerned. And that's why Absolutely. right at the beginning, though, wasn't it? It was uh, Chris Stamp and Kit Lambert, the son of Constance Lambert, that guy. You know, that sort of yeah, union, yeah. intellectual union that they had. Uh, and I, I love the fact that that just, you know, that well, guy really understood him, really, and sort of set them off in absolutely, an Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah, it was his background with the Royal Opera, uh, the Royal Ballet, rather, and everything. That's where the idea of the rock on because funnily enough uh, on rock on tours last week we had andrew lou golden heard it brilliant who yeah and and of course he was a hero of mine like kit lamb and chris stamp because yeah again because the because these were ideas guys um, which is why when i first met spandau ballet in budapest in 1984 it was steve dagger their manager oh. i want i was made more excited and that's actually who i became mates with wow. i met gary because steve <laughs> recommended me for something for him years later because it's these it's so. these ideas guys that were in, you're interested in sort of thing well it, it was also part of that meritocracy which is long gone you know it was that cross-pollination wasn't it you suddenly had you had toffs and kids yeah. and everyone all in it together which is what made the 60s and the 70s. And well, of course, now that ladder's been pulled back up. Oh, fucking hell, in, in such a big way. We've got to start kicking yeah. that back down again. We have to reclaim it ourselves, I think. I mean, I've got to get, I'll, <laughs> I'll bring it back, circle it back to base for a minute. And, oh, yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, because I love the, the, the ebb and the flow. But who, who are the sort of top five, and I know this will change from moment to moment, day to day, but who are the top guys for you? If you had to choose like three bass players that you feel of just who just you know sort of who are the top of the game for no you? i know what you mean it's uh, uh and, you know, and that was really good of you to say the ebb and the flow how the, the how it changes from day to day because you're right i mean i've had a big shift lately where i finally realized i mean it's 
it's always Bernard Edwards, always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, right, or absolutely, who, who just wrote the book for me. Um, but, and, it, it, and Tony Levin, oh. I, and the thing I love about Tony is, uh, and Jed Lynch has confirmed this for me, because Jed played with Peter Gale for years, is that because Tony has such ludicrous technical facility, right? He, um, like he, rec I was speaking to him a couple of years ago, and he was transcribing um, Stravinsky's The Firebird for the Chapman stick. Right, right, but at the end, of, when you listen to him with Peter a lot of time, he's a punk rock chancer yeah. just like me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's elements of that of like he's just kind of having a laugh, and he's there's got great humour in his playing, which I think is really, really important. But then, in terms of, I remember, and when we talked to Daryl Jones from the Stones the other week, you know, this yeah. guy, and he kind of agreed was that. Obviously, James Jameson wrote the book, mm, mm, and but so did Paul McCartney. Yeah, you know that literally wrote the book. There was nothing to go from rock and roll bass playing taught you nothing. Doom, 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 doom. So, uh, so in fact, bass playing as we know it kind of came from sort of the later jazz play. It came from like things like Kind of Blue. Like yes. You know, that's that's actually the birth of the bass as we know it. Yeah. So. It, but I'd say, yeah, so how many names was that? That was four. That's a and good, Lee Sklar. Lee Sklar, because he he's so beautifully kind of classy. And uh, Jar Wobble. Oh, God, what a sound as well. Do you, a lot of it's to do with the feel and the sound. What an amazingly the... charismatic man as well. <laughs> yes. I've got to say, I love that man. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. With uh, For me, it would always be, that's the, those are the cornerstones for me, and they come from the 60s, McCartney on the one side and James Jameson on the other. And there was a, what, there was a whole... There was oh, a and of course, sorry. And of course, yeah. uh, family man, Aston Barrett. Aston Barrett. Fucking hell. Who is, because uh, the, the, he was, you know, if for, for learning, but because the, he, he is that absolute thing of, uh, of, you know, you could play that stuff from day one. Doom, ba doom, ba doom, ba doom, yeah. ba doom, boom, boom. You know, so I've got a theory about reggae bass playing. Oh, I'd like to hear it. Well, which it, because a lot of it came from in Jamaica, they were hearing they they could pick up um, radio stations out of New Orleans and stuff, yeah. and they used to all listen to like Fats Domino and all that R and B. And if you listen to a lot of bass playing, it's like R and B bass playing, but with notes missing. Yeah, it's almost like when you know, dunga 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 dunga. So it's almost like the radio signal <laughs> cutting in and out when they're listening to those records. That's a, yeah. I, I like the the idea that it's the the the, the actual the quality it of their signal from two thousand miles. That's actually <laughs> yeah. got a lot to do with when the one. Comes no, I don't in. think it's a radio signal, but I do think. But it is that thing of of stripped back yes. R and B. You know, is where though because it's you know those amazing spaces you get in reggae playing. Oh. And then, and then, kind of the opposite. But with, with somebody like J James Jameson, somebody pointed out the bass line to "I Was Made to Love Her" by Stevie Wonder the oh, other day. And someone it's did a visual representation of that. There's a, there's a thing that was going around on Twitter and everywhere. There's a where it's just like a kind of bouncing ball yeah. thing that, 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 that plays it out. It's insane. Well, I, you know, I did actually. Could, you know the famous story about what's going on? And I did actually get to lie on the exact spot in the Motown studio. <laughs> where he had to lie on the ground because he was too drunk to sit on a chair. I didn't know this one. Oh, do you want to hear it? Yes. Okay, so Motown back then was was a nine-to-five operation, right? Yeah. And it, so, and it was still that. So when, when Marvin starts working on the What's Going On 
um, when you know, suddenly he's discovered conscious soul, um, and, this, and suddenly it's into that whole rock vibe of we work all night and we go, you know, and that just didn't exist before then. It was a nine to five job. So the Funk Brothers, James and you know the other guys, yeah. um, that they used to go and do jazz and soul gigs at various little clubs around mm -hmm. town. And so Marvin is in the studio and he's working on what's going on. And it gets to about one o'clock in the morning. He's just like, I've, I've, I'm hot. I've got to cut this. I've got to cut this. Get the band. They go, we don't know where they are. Get them. So they call around town until they find the club that they're playing <laughs> at. And they speak to, oh, his name's gone, the drummer. And they go, listen, you guys have got to come down here now. And they go, listen, I don't think it's a good idea. No, no, you've got to. No, James is pretty drunk. It doesn't matter. No, 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 he's really drunk. <laughs> so they bring, <laughs> they'll come back. And they sit James down on a chair, and he, starts, and he can't do it. He's too, too drunk. He just keeps sliding off. So they lie him down on the ground of the snake pit, and he plays that line. For oh, God's sake. Yeah, one of the greatest bits of bass playing of all time. So he plays that drunk on his back. And I used to use that quite a lot as an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah, getting in the James zone. recording what's going on. <laughs> That's hilarious. Here's a question from, for a bass player. Did James Jameson really never change his strings? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I never quite got that thing, that badge of honour of never changing your strings. I never quite got that. Because apart from anything else, it would just be quite unpleasant after yeah. a couple of years. A bit murky, All that dead it? skin and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But that's what the, but that's maybe the, maybe not. I don't, but it was different. The whole that thing towards strings was different. You know, I, I remember the whole people have a very different attitude towards it. Because I remember there was a thing when I was young. Whenever I got a new bass guitar, if I brought a brand new bass guitar, that it had they sounded a certain way, and that your first set of strings, the strings that came on it, lasted for ages yeah. and ages and ages and ages, and then that finally went dead, and then you change the strings, and it was never the same. Yeah, ever. It's like a second cup of it's tea. It's a funny thing that. Yeah. It's just that you can't really achieve it. So, yeah. But it's, but I, you know, I remember when I, you know, of course, when I, had to, I used to boil my street, you boil them in a little bit of vinegar or what? washing up liquid, and then you get another gig out of them. Yeah. Oh my God. Rusted. Those are the days. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, I, I've got, I'm, before I, before it becomes a hostage situation, I, I could spend all day talking to you about this stuff, but I, I want to wind it up soon with a couple of questions. But one, it has to be, um, you've worked with so many people that, I would kill to be in a room with. You know, you've worked with Coverdale Page, you've worked with Jimmy Page, for Christ's sake, you've worked with yeah. Warmack and Warmack, with Robert Palmer, with, but you've worked with Bernard Edwards, with Madonna. Madonna's barked at you about lava lamps, you know, Michael Jackson, all these people. So we, we've not even mentioned the, what really, you, you're playing with Pink Floyd and David Gilmore for the last 30 years, that's a whole other thing. But like, yeah. easy, as I put you on the spot right now, again, this is something that must change every day, is the one incident, one, one moment, working with somebody, playing with somebody that you, you thought, you know, you could knock me over with a feather right now because I can't believe I'm in this moment with this person playing this stuff. Um, I, you kind of get, I kind of get that. Um, I've probably had it, it's probably something approaching 600 times now, <laughs> which is every time the bloke literally standing on the stage next to me on my left, or used to, well, funny, it used to be on my right, then for the last 20 years, it's been on my left. Um, kicks into that solo from Comfortably Numb. Fuck yeah. Oh. It's just, and it's has in the back. And it's like, uh, what am I doing? I, you know, I'm still waiting for the tap on the shoulder. Terribly sorry, so it's been, it's been a mistake. You still, you still get that little bit of imposter syndrome. I still get syndrome. that. It's like, what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh but, but every time he kicks into that solo, you just think, what? 
what? Well, that's, right. it's this, the, he embodies more than most people the ineffable nature of music, doesn't he? I've, again, I've seen you in your stage show do that funny thing where you, you're talking about how uh, intros for bands, you know, if you're ACDC, oh, yeah. if you're The yeah. Who, and then if, you, if you're Pink Floyd, it's just that... It's like, bing! <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is all well, that Dave, magic. David has a... Yeah, I mean, David has a... He has an innate understanding of music like I've never, ever come across from anyone. It's just this absolute understanding. Even when we were doing um, Hey, Hey, Rise Up, the Ukraine record, there's a couple that we just move something just there, just shift that to just... And it's... And everything shifts. He has such a, you know, an incredible... The other, and also, I mean, Jimmy Page has this sort of understanding of music, which is just... I, I remember having to learn Zeppelin songs for the Carverdale Page thing. Yeah. And I spend all night working out these really complex shifts. And I go in, and Jimmy go, no, no, it's not that. And I go, what? He goes, it's this. And he'd show me something. And I think, but it can't be that. That would be... That wouldn't work. That would be, oh, my God, it is. Fuck. You know? What? So uh, he would yeah. show you... He would, like, show you a different way of playing that bass line. I'd what I thought things were. Well, oh, it's... It, it's they're, they're just notes aren't always the notes you think they are. It's... I mean, it's... God. It's very classical, a lot of what he does. Yeah. The, he's and got weird, a deep... It's a weird Indian scale. Some of the stuff in Kashmir is, is yeah. mental. I mean, that's that's one of the great dad-gag guitar tuning moments, it is, isn't it? Yes. When you When you learn how to play that... For it just, it's one of those things, If you, you you are Jimmy Page in that moment, but how the fuck he comes up with it is an entirely another thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, it's basically, it's that, there's that da, 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 where basically the riffs start, you go through a G minor scale and you end up on the major third of an A, which is extraordinary and it sounds fine. So. <laughs> oh, Jimmy, we love you. Um, okay, well, here's a final question for Need to Know Bassist, right? If you're introducing a young buck bass player to the bass, what is is there a sort of Miyagi golden rule of bass? Is this is there a central sort of philosophy or a thought that you would give somebody, you know, that would help them to be a great bass player? No, I can't really think because I don't know how I learned. Do you know what I mean? I have this really funny thing. I go back and I can't remember how I learned. The only sort of lesson I've had, what I'll never forget was when I was twenty two years old and at Compass Point in the Bahamas. Bastard working with Bernard Edwards, I know, and just terrified. I woke up and was terrified all day, every day. And he knew that, and he was really lovely and paternal. And he used to take me into the games room and sit me down, you know, to sort of calm me down and everything, <laughs> and, and, put, and show me stuff. And, um, and, the only, and he just gave me this one lesson. He said, okay, you do whatever you want. You go over the hell of you, what you want. Just go as nuts as you want, go anywhere. But just make sure you get home for one. Oh, <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. Get back on the one. Yeah. Don't Just be get late. Home, get home for one. Oh. And he, that was, um, so, so that's probably the best advice yeah. I've ever had. I love that. Get home for one. That's the, yeah. that's the title of this uh, particular uh, episode, I think. Get home for <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, there you go. That's beautiful. Um, I don't know what to say, mate. It's it's great to chat to you. Um, a bit, oh, it's lovely to talk to you, man. It's been ages. Finally, I would say, I don't yeah. know if you remember this, but the, the perhaps the only other time I officially interviewed you was actually in the back of a taxi going around Regent's Park about 12 years ago. I don't know if you remember that. But that actually happened. That's not a weird dream. And, and, and the events that led to that were... Um, I think what it was was you were coming in to be interviewed on my breakfast show straight after the breakfast show, but I had to go out because my kid was ill or something. I had to go home. And, and, and we crossed the threshold of Wogan House. And you sort of said, well, is there no way that we can do it anyway? And my producer was like, I'll tell you what, I'll order us a taxi and I'll just do it in the back of the taxi on the way back to your show and then we'll drop Guy off. 
There you go. Wow, Instant. why don't I remember that? That's because that's quite that's very cool. I know. Well, on, that's on, on everyone's front. Yeah, you know, I know. everyone lo- everyone looks good <laughs> in that story. You were very amenable and uh, it oh. all worked out beautifully, uh, just as oh. it has today. Um but listen, great luck. You don't need any luck with Rock on Tours, you and Gary. I listen every week as do, as do millions. It's fantastic. Can't wait for oh, the next you. one. Um, hopefully we'll see you in the new year. And uh, obviously I'm saving up at the moment because I, I very much like you to play a couple of tracks on my new on my upcoming solo album, uh, slated for release October 24. I'll play for you, Shul. All right. Don't worry about it, mate. I'll, I'll do something for you. You heard that, Ben. Um, listen, yeah. need to know bassist. Thank you very much to Guy Pratt. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.